Well, good morning, everybody. Uh, Let me pray for us before we uh, read God's word together. Father, we come to you now and we uh, admit that we can't possibly know, I can't possibly know where all of us have come from and where all of us are in our mind and our spirit and our faith right now. And so we ask that you would do this amazing thing in our eyes, that you would be happy to use this word that is written, that we will read and talk about together to show us the word incarnate, the word who came to bear our flesh, the light who came into darkness, that you would show us Jesus, meet us in the places where we are, and change us by his grace. And we ask this in his name. Amen. Well, as we have uh, already said and sung and prayed uh, and heard and seen, today is the first Sunday in Advent. And Advent uh, is that season of the year, as Pastor Jeff reminded us, where we both remember and anticipate the coming of God into the world. We remember Bethlehem and we remember that Jesus, as the Creed said, was born of the Virgin Mary. But also in the middle of our own situations, whatever those situations might be, in the middle of a broken and angry city, in the middle of a broken world filled with fresh fears and spasms of violence, we also anticipate during Advent that day when Jesus will return with both judgment and healing to make everything new, to make us new. Advent is the season that has an eye on both of those times, Bethlehem time and the end of time. We say he has come and he is coming. That's where people like us stand during this season, with our eyes moving back and forth between the two advents of Jesus, wildly glad for the first one, desperately longing for the second one. And so as much as our culture might want to make this season about um, consumption, about the acquisition of stuff, as much as we may be pressed in from our culture to make this season about cozy, insular celebrations and warm feelings, we should not, church, be suckered into thinking that that is all there is. So for the next three weeks, we're going to look together at three places in Luke's gospel where Jesus' arrival is talked about. We're calling it the apocalypse of Jesus, using the old sense of that word apocalypse, we're going to look at three places where the coming of Jesus and what it means for people like us is revealed, where it is uncovered for us to see. So we're going to start this morning on the muddy banks of the Jordan River with a wild-eyed prophet named John. So I'll read from Luke 3 for us, and you can follow along in the order of worship where it's printed or in a Bible, or you can just listen as I read from Luke 3, verses 1 through 9. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea and Herod being the tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip, tetrarch of the region of Icheria and Trachonitis, and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. And he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, 
make his paths straight. Every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill shall be made low and the crooked shall become straight and the rough places shall become level ways and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. He said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits in keeping with repentance and do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. This is God's word and it's given for our good. So this last week on Thursday, Thanksgiving Day, uh, our family was watching the Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade on NBC. And at some point during that broadcast, I looked up and kind of with one eye saw that they were playing this now uh, kind of famous clip from 1994 from the Today Show um, when Bryant Gumbel and Katie Couric were trying to discuss the Internet um, I don't know, what, I don't have any idea really why they showed it during the parade, but I have seen this clip on YouTube a bunch of times. It's pretty great. Maybe some of you have seen it. Uh, Brian Gumbel had just read an email to the viewing audience, and he had stumbled over the reading of that email, and he said that he stumbled over it, and these are his words, because he wasn't prepared to talk about that little mark, the A, with the ring around it, <laughs> right? Talking about the at sign. Katie Couric said that she thought that it meant about, but we, but she wasn't sure. And then um, Gumble, like in frustration, asks no one in particular. He just kind of throws it out. He says, what is Internet anyway? <laughs> After a couple seconds of silence, Katie Couric says, Internet is that massive computer network, the one that's becoming really big now. And Brian says, what do you mean? Do you write to it like mail? <laughs> it is a great little snippet, a great little record of people trying to come to terms with something that would, in just a handful of years, change not only their lives, but the way that the whole world lives and works and plays. And of course, if you were born before, say, 1990, you probably have vivid memories of that pre, you know, whatever we want to call it world, and you probably remember what it was like yourself to begin to come to terms with that technology. I can remember being with my small group one night and waiting for 20 minutes, waiting for 20 minutes for the Coca-Cola homepage to fully render in one of our browsers. And even though it's embarrassing for me to say this, I have to admit to you what I told them after we waited 20 minutes for the Coca-Cola webpage to, to, to load. I said, you know, I think the Internet is a fad. And I think people are going to get sick of it really soon. You know, it was an odd time. We were looking at a nascent technology and not knowing that it would change absolutely everything. And I think that feeling, that that kind of hapless naivete at events that are about to change the whole world is a pretty good window into the world that Luke describes at the beginning of that text that we just read and heard together. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being the governor of Judea and Herod being the tetrarch of Galilee. That's a pretty specific time frame. And those are some incredibly powerful, powerful people. 
And along with these three names, Luke goes on to list four more power brokers over God's people, two more governors of Rome, two high priests who colluded with the power of Rome. And taken together, these seven names represent for God's people about a hundred years of rule under the empire, the last 25 of which have had a governor from Rome in a palace in Jerusalem. These seven names taken together represent for God's people rule by oppression and by fear and by intimidation. It represents merciless violence dropped on the heads of anyone who would step out of line. And what those seven guys don't know, what they couldn't possibly know from their seats of power, is that they are on a cusp of an advent that will change absolutely everything. And that is really good news. Luke has told us in the first two chapters of this gospel that two babies have been born, one named John and one named Jesus. And from the moment of their birth, they have been set on a certain trajectory. And now we are finding out that that trajectory happens to be a crash course with the kind of world that these seven guys have contrived to create. And once that crash happens, nothing will be the same again. Luke piles up these names not because he's a detail guy, although he may be. He piles up these names because he wants these particular details and that particular world to land with a thud. This is a very dark time for God's people. They live in fear and they live with a nagging sense that things are not right. And at least some of God's people know that at least in part they have culpability for things not being right. They have not been faithful as a people. They have often turned from God and many of them had become both comfortable and complicit in navigating the system of oppression and fear and violence that had been imposed on them. They had become very good at working it. Luke wants us to know that's what things were like on the cusp of Jesus' advent. Things were dark. And that is a very good reminder for people like us. Last year I read this great short piece by Christina Cleveland who teaches at Duke Divinity School. I mentioned it in an Advent sermon last year and a line from it has stuck with me all year. She wrote that Advent is not about our best world. It is about our worst world. She goes on to say that Jesus entered into a world plagued not only by the darkness of individual pain and sin, but also by the darkness of systemic oppression. And we do the light a disservice, she says, when we underestimate the darkness. And you know, our own great city has been roiled by that kind of darkness of late. Like probably everyone, I was concerned when I heard that the video of the shooting of Laquan McDonald would be released. I was concerned because I wondered what would happen in this city in response. But in the end, it is good for dark things to be brought into the light. When things are seen for what they really are, the good news of the coming of Jesus is seen for what it really is. The good news of both his judgment and his healing is not a vague theological concept in moments like this in our city. It has real flesh and blood shape on the streets of our city. 
The same goes for the darkness that we may be experiencing in our own lives, whatever that may be, grief over relationships that we have broken, the imprisonment of our own addictions, shame over things that we have done or things that have been done to us, fear about our future, fear about the future of those we love. These things too, church, these things too need the light of Jesus coming. His coming has a real flesh and blood meaning for those things as well. His cross and his resurrection have the final say, the final word about our darkness. It means that people like us can stop acting as if that darkness is not there. Or we can stop trying to cover it up or frantically compensate for it. We don't have to bear it alone, and we don't have to bear it in hiding. We can drag whatever that thing is out into the light and speak the truth about it and begin to experience the healing and the forgiveness that Jesus has secured through his death and resurrection. That, church, is the very, very good news of Advent. And that good news, Luke tells us, begins to be spoken when the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. Luke has already told us, as I mentioned, all of the beautiful and mysterious details of John's birth in chapter 1 of his gospel. You should definitely read Luke chapter 1 this afternoon. It is classic Advent reading. And if you know the story, you know that when Zechariah hears he's going to have a boy, he's incredulous about it. And he asked for a sign to know that it would be true. Well, he gets a sign. Zechariah, John's father, cannot speak from the moment that he asked for that sign until the moment that baby is born. And when he finally gets his voice back, he says some incredible words about his son. This is what he said. You, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High. For you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness. That's Advent, church. And that is John, in a nutshell. He's the one who gets people ready for the coming of Jesus. And the gospel writer Matthew sums up all of John's preaching in one pregnant sentence. He sums up all of John's preaching like this. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. When John says the kingdom of heaven is at hand, he is saying that this long-promised rule of God is just about to arrive. And it would be hard to overstate how important it is to understand what John means by that. The kingdom, the rule that he is talking about, is not a place that you go to. It's not a land. It's not a castle. It's not a province that you journey to in order to be a part of. It's not a state of mind or a state of being. It is the very real and very active presence and rule of God in his world. John is saying God is coming to keep his promises of healing and of forgiveness and of restoration for his people. And he is also coming as a judge to make the world right again and to restore peace and justice everywhere. He is coming to do business with the darkness. Both the darknesses that is out there and the darkness that is in here. 
And Luke is so intent that we understand that this is what's happening and that this is John's role in it, that he stops the quote from Isaiah 40, that Old Testament lesson that we heard this morning. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. And then there's this beautiful picture of all of creation bending over backwards to make way for God to come. I mean, when God comes, you don't have to build a bridge for him over the valley because the valley comes up to meet him. When God comes, you don't have to show him the pathway around the mountain because the mountain lowers itself for God. Crooked things become straight and rough places become level for his footsteps. And you know what all of this communicates? All of this communicates an air of ironclad inevitability. Right? John is not saying that there's a better than average chance this will happen or a Lord willing in the creek don't rise sensibility to it. He is saying it will happen. It will. And that's why these words of promise are always words of comfort to people like us. Just like God said it would be to the prophet Isaiah. Comfort my people. Tell them that their warfare is ended and that their iniquity is pardoned. Speak tenderly to my people and comfort them and tell them I am coming. In a, in a post-Paris world of mindless violence and renewed fearfulness, God would have us know without a doubt that he has spoken the last word about darkness and that its days are numbered. In a city that is racked with grief and confusion over the alleyway execution of little Taishan Lee, in a city boiling over with anger at the shooting of Laquan McDonald, God would have us know that he has come and that he is coming and that there is a day where the weight of his glory, the full essence of his being will be revealed and all flesh, everyone will see it and darkness will be beaten back and finished. The justice and the peace in which and for which this world was made will be restored. The sunrise will visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness. And when God offers this comfort, he is not just offering us a word of distant solace. This darkness won't be dispelled by some vague theological conception. This darkness will not be dispelled by some set of reforms that we put into place in memory of this God's name. God is offering comfort of another order altogether. He says the darkness will be dispelled because of Advent. The darkness will be dispelled because God himself is coming. And my guess is that John and Isaiah before him wouldn't have guessed in a million years the means by which God would defeat darkness. God defeats darkness by being willingly overcome by it in order to exhaust it of its power forever. John might not have known it, but that is the scandalous logic of the kingdom he announced. The fullest expression of God's darkness-crushing glory is found in the self-giving love of his cross. Jesus' death and his resurrection and his ascension is how darkness, both the darkness that is out there and the darkness that is in here, is defeated. And part of growing up as a Christian is believing that that is true. 
and then spending our days tirelessly and faithfully working out that good news in our own lives and in our own relationships and in the broken world that is all around us. We may not be able to fully grasp it. We, we, we could hardly believe that Jesus would say something like this about us, but he was very clear. You are the light of the world. That is our vocation, church. To make the good news of the death and resurrection of Jesus fully and completely red-bloodedly physically present in this world. And as far as John is concerned, there is no part about this that is negotiable. He's not saying God's kingdom is here to live in if you would like to. He's not saying God's kingdom is here to experience up in your head if you think about it hard enough. He's not saying it's here as one option of kingdoms among many options of kingdoms. He just says it is here and nothing will be the same again. And that's why Luke's message always begins like Jesus did with repentance. As Luke puts it, he proclaimed a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. John wants us to know that the presence of God's kingdom in the person of Jesus breaks one of two ways in our lives. The presence of the rule of God in the person of Jesus breaks one of two ways for everybody's life. On the one hand, I can try to bury my head in the sand and keep living as a complicit, compliant citizen in the closed, status quo, graceless world that I have been living in. That world that is carved up by the modern Herods and Pilots and Tiberiuses, run down by callous oppression and mindless consumption and marching secularization. Or I could loosen my death grip on that run-down world. And I could loosen my death grip on all of the things that have been hurting me and hurting the people around me. And I can stop running around like a scared animal. And I can turn around and face the one who made me and who wants me to flourish and say, I'm sorry. Please help. That's what repentance is. And church, we don't do it staring into the void of space with our fingers crossed. When we say we are sorry, we do it looking directly at the cross of the God who, who happily, who willingly came into our darkness to rescue us. When we say, I am sorry, in faith we are forgiven and we are restored and we are set free or set free again if we've been away for a while to live the life that we have been made to live under the gracious and peaceable rule of Jesus. So next week, we'll talk a lot more about what John preaches out there by the Jordan River. But let me say that for now, as far as he's concerned, nothing could be more urgent than this. Even now, he says, even now, this moment, the axe is laid to the root of the tree. It's a stark matter of light and dark, which is why he greets those who come out to see him. And there were droves of them, multitudes of them came out to see him. He greets them with a, hello, you brood of vipers. You sons and daughters of snakes, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? John doesn't want them to be feeling warm and safe in the ways they have always wanted to feel warm and safe. And he invites them to something more. 
For John, the thing that matters is not what happens out there in a dramatic moment by the Jordan River. For John, the thing that matters is the long game, the actual living of a life of faith. So he tells these crowds that are coming out to see him to bear fruits in keeping with their repentance. The thing that matters to John is a fundamental whole life realignment of one's heart and life to the coming rule of God. The thing that matters to John is a genuine, ongoing submission to God's reign that results in ways of living and being that change, that move out of darkness and into light. In church, that makes John's word as relevant to people like us as it was on the day that he spoke them. What do we say right now, right this minute, to John's invitation? The true light, which gives light to everyone, is coming into the world. Let me pray for us.